Thank you, Debbie. A couple things I want to say before we get started back in the, the Seven Churches series. Uh, first of all, Cindy, glad you're back too. <laughs> all that attention on Billy. So glad you're with us. And uh, also, Sam, where you at, buddy? See, hey, man, good job last Sunday night. Thank you for the youth Sunday night last night. Last Sunday night, our youth Sunday, they did a great job. You guys, if you weren't here, you missed it. Sam gave you devotion, did a really good job. The reason I remember to say that is because you messed with my ear thing here. It's okay. It's all right. Anytime, buddy. But last thing I would ever want anybody to do is discourage someone from ministering uh, or from, from trying to better themselves or uh, from doing something like those kids did last Sunday night. So, you know what? You can always mess with this earpiece. That's just fine. We don't want to discourage each other, right? We always want to encourage each other in faith to worship, to do the things that we know that God wants us to do. Today, we continue our series, The Seven Churches. We're on church number, uh, I'm not good with math, I think it's three, Pergamum. Also, it is sometimes spelled with an O-N on the end instead of a U-M, just so there's no confusion. As we do that, let me ask you this question. Has anyone ever said to you, or maybe have you ever said to someone, Jesus knows. He knows what you're doing. He knows what you're thinking. He knows where you're at in life. Now, as we've had the kids up here today, I know that's something that we probably all told our kids, or again, maybe when you were a kid. I know mom and dad used to tell me, hey, Jesus knows. Maybe you might be able to hide it from us. Maybe you might be sneaky. But, but Jesus knows. <clears throat> He's with you. And I remember thinking about that so many times. Really? Eh, I don't, Jesus doesn't know about that. I, I don't, didn't quite understand. He, he doesn't really, he's not really standing next to me. But then one day, as I grew up, I got it. I started to understand. He really does know. He really is with me all the time. And then when you start to think about that, you start to think, man, I've really in my life, taking Jesus some places that I shouldn't have. And I've thought some things and had some attitude that I shouldn't have had. And when you start thinking about Jesus being right there with you, you start to get it a little bit about our responsibility as Christians, action, attitude, behavior, the whole nine yards, every aspect, every day, 24-7, the responsibility that we have to worship him in every way. I didn't get it at first, that's for sure. But through study, through growth, you start to understand. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 helps with that. It says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Later on in the verse, it says, It exposes thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Now think about that. Everything. All creation. That's what the Lord knows. There's nothing that hides from him. Adam and Eve tried to hide in the garden. It didn't work out for them too well. What about you and your lives? What attitudes are you trying to hide from God? You might try to hide it from yourself. You might try to justify it. You might even... Fool yourself. But Jesus knows. 
All creation, every aspect. Also, all seven letters that we will talk about, all, all seven churches, when Jesus addresses them, he uses those, that term. I know. He tells them straight up, all of them, I know. So let's think about a few of these things that Jesus does know. When it comes to our lives, when it pertains to us, he knows where you live. He knows all 2,000 people, and he knows which one of, ones of you are soreheads. And maybe that's debatable to us, but Jesus, he knows. He most certainly knows. He knows the issues that we face. He knows how our town is. He knows how our state is, our country is. Jesus knows for sure where we live. Revelations chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. This is the message from the one with a sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. So, he knows about your town. Hartford, right? Well, today we're going to talk about Pergamum. And he knows all about this city. And I've jotted down a few things I'm going to share with you. This is a city of 2,000 people. It was a cultural center. Now, the cities we've talked about before, you know, Ephesus and some of them, they're a lot of trade. This is a city that is, rivals them, any of them, with the culture that they have. The theaters, the coliseums, the temples, the buildings. Their library was the second largest that we know of in ancient times. It contained uh, 40 to 200,000 books or manuscripts, parchments. In fact, uh, when the, the library in Alexandria burnt down, some of those books from uh, the library in Pergamum were taken from Pergamum back to Alexandria to replenish them as a wedding gift from Mark Antony to Cleopatra. The city's, the city's got some rich history. One of their temples was the uh, Asclepium Temple, uh, the god of, of health. It was almost like a hospital, an early form of a hospital, uh, because they had learned some legitimate techniques to help people feel better. Hot springs. And you might think hot springs doesn't have any healing factors, but not to the extent that maybe they were trying to think. A hot spring's not going to cure cancer, but it will help you with some of your muscles, your arthritis, things like that. Uh, Galen, one of the, the top doctors of the time, presided there. Some of their other temples, uh, again, it was a, a rich cultural place with different communities coming together. Uh, they had Egyptian, Greek, and Roman gods. Uh, and a major temple to the Egyptians, uh, competing temples to Athena and Zeus. Uh, when we read the scripture a second ago, it said Satan's throne. Now, there's a couple things that we can think about here because of all these false gods, all these temptations because of the way they, these people did things, that Greek way of life, if you will. But there's also the fact that in Zeus's temple, there was this structure, uh, which now sits in uh, Berlin, actually, uh, in a museum there the Museum of Pergamum in Berlin, Germany. And when you, this structure up on a hillside, especially from a distance, looks like a giant throne. And some would call it the throne of Zeus. In Scripture, we call it Satan's throne. Because what is Satan going to do in our lives? He's going to use false gods. He is going to do anything he can to separate you from God. These false gods will identify Pergamum for sure. 
Every city is identified with some good and some bad. We've got some good things here in Hartford, but you know what? There's also some drugs, some, some drug problems. And that might be with any city across our country right now. There's sin in our city, just like there was in Pergamum. And we might not have a temple to Zeus, but there's definitely sin here, folks. And we've got to, just like those early Christians in Pergamum are going to have to fight against these false ideas, we also have to do that same thing. See, Christ knows where, where we live. He knows about our town. And he also knows our challenges. Some of the challenges that we may have because we live in this specific location, but also some of the challenges that you may have specifically that are temptations to you. Some of today's false gods are pleasure, entertainment, sports, talking about anything that keeps us away from Christ worship. Now, now what have you allowed in your life to keep you away from worshiping Christ? In every aspect of your life. Because if there's just one thing that you know that Christ would not like about your life, that's not worshiping him. That's rebelling. Other false gods, money, wealth, possession, stuff. I've talked about it numerous times. If your priority in your life is to get that money, that wealth, and that stuff, those things, priorities are off. Maybe it's to look good being young. You, you turn on TV nowadays. You look, open up a magazine. You, you buzz through the Internet. How many things do you see about staying young, looking better? Being young can become a false god. But as we stand against these temptations, now don't get me wrong. It's not bad to have money. It's not bad to want to look good or, or to feel younger. It's when these things come between us and worshiping Christ that it really becomes an issue in our lives. And that's where we have to say also, just like he knows our challenges, Christ also knows our faith. And the people of Pergamum, he said, you've remained loyal. We've got to remain loyal. We cannot soften our faith for society. Oh, they want us to right now, don't they? Our world, they want us to change what the scripture says about sin. Folks, we can't do it. That's the word of God. That's the sharpest two-edged sword there is. Can't change. We can't soften our view on things. We can't start justifying or saying this that, that they were talking about 2,000 years ago is no longer a sin today. That is not how it works. Christ never changes. Stays the same. Yesterday, today, forever. It never changes. And we must not soften that. He knows our faith, and he knows how we will stand. Antipas also stood firm. Uh, John, in Jesus there, uh, John wrote the book. He's quoting Jesus, mentions his faithful servant Antipas. This was a man trained by John. This was a man who was a leader in this church in Pergamum, who was martyred. He died for the faith. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but the stories of legend say that it was at the Egyptian temple and that he stood his ground on his faith, so they burned him at the stake and he wouldn't deny Christ. That's the kind of faith we have to have, folks. That's the kind of faith that we have to have as we go out and we face this world right now. We have to be bold enough to say that no one can stop us, even if it makes them mad, even if they don't like us anymore. 
We're, we're not trying to be the most popular church in town. We're trying to be the church that worships Christ and obeys him. Do we want people to like us? Sure. No one doesn't want to be liked. And there's no reason why we can't share the faith and show the love. And people also like us, but some won't. Some won't. Because what happens when you tell somebody they're wrong? Does anybody like being told you're wrong? Nobody does. There's not one person. But you know what? Every single one of us are. Every single one of us. And we've got to be able to look to each other for that encouragement, that guidance from the Holy Spirit. So we talked about where we live. Jesus definitely knows that. Our challenges and our faith. He also knows the people you associate with. In Hartford, we've got some to associate with, let me tell you. The riffraff in Beaverdam. <laughs> and of course, everyone, I hope, realizes I'm joking. Right? We are one community here, and there's no doubt about that. We, have, we may have rivalries for whatever reason, but we are one community. But as individuals, Christ knows who we associate with. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, going on with the scripture, says, But I have a few complaints against you. Man, that wouldn't be the easiest thing to hear. Because now it's time for some little bit of this is what you're doing wrong. I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols, by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have uh, some uh, Nic Nicolaitans among you who follow Nic Nicolaitans. Yeah, among you who follow the same teaching. Look, false doctrine. That's what we're talking about here. False doctrine. Every church, now listen to this, because oftentimes today we love to compare how it used to be. How it used to be, right? The older folks here, we always say, oh, the kids nowadays, or oh, back in the day. But I promise you guys, when you were in the spot of these younger generation now, I promise you, the older folks were saying the same thing about you. Think about that, and don't be discouraging as we continue to move forward, right? Think about that. Today's churches, though, every church, every community, every generation, every, every single one of them has faced some of these same problems that was just mentioned. People who follow false teaching, people who lead others astray. Every, not just some, every church, every community, every generation, not just the ones in the Bible, not just them, all of them, us included. Some want to make faith difficult and confusing. That's shameful. Some do. Some want to bully you into believing the way they think. Some are self-proclaimed experts. The comparison was made to Balaam. And what did he do? We're talking about the guy who the donkey turned around and said, you know, why are you beating me? All right, you can look at the book of Numbers. I think it's in chapter 22 through 24 for that story. Not going to go into it today. But Balaam, who was a prophet, but, but not Jewish. But still, God was giving him messages. And those messages were loud and clear to Balaam. Israel is God's chosen people. 
right? And Balak would get upset. What do you mean? I want you to tell me what I want to hear. I want to know what I want to know. Give it to me my way. But Balaam couldn't do that because that's not what God said. See some similarities here. We can't tell you different than what the scripture says, even if we wanted to, which we shouldn't want to. We can't tell you different about the word of God. Finally, Balaam says, you know what? I, I can't tell you that God's going to bless you and your army instead of the Israelites. It's not going to happen. But I can tell you a way to get to them. Offer them temptation. Give them separation from God. With what? Sinful food? Sexual immorality. And that's exactly what they did. And now they're making this comparison for this church in Pergamum. This comparison to you're allowing people to come in and bring sin and bring temptation and not correcting it and not making the attitudes and the actions right and it's leading people astray. The other comparison to the, to the Nicolaitans. Now this is a, something that we don't know for sure what it was. Not positive, but we're looking at, again, sexual sin. Self-indulgent, self-serving. That attitude that is not Christ-like. Now think about your own life for a second, folks. Think about it. What are you allowing to be a false teaching in your life to lead you? What are you allowing to lead you astray from God? Are you leading others astray? Because you're not following the word of God. Because you're not taking your responsibility serious. Because you don't know what your priority is. If that's the case, then we've got to repent. In fact, we know that we have to continuously repent and always turn to God. Always. But don't do anything that's not what the Scripture says that's going to lead you away from God. See, Christ knows who we associate with. He knows our challenges. He knows where we live. And he also knows the actions that you need to take. He knows the actions that our church needs to take to reach people. He knows the actions that you need to take to make sure you're right with him. The scripture says, repent and be baptized. Where are you at in life right now? Do you need to take one of these actions? Revelation 2.16 Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly with a fight against them with the sword of my mouth, that sharp, double-edged sword. Two meanings of the word repent, sorrow and change. Now listen, we're talking about really being sorry. Really being sorry to the point of you want to change, turn back to God, turn away from that sin. Perhaps more than ever, today's church is affected by a few things. On one hand, today's church is affected by compromise and liberalism. Let's water down the scripture a little bit. Let's compromise with what the word of God, the double-edged sword says, the word of his mouth. Or in other places, and it's just as guilty, legalism and condemnation. Let's get rid of the liberalism, let's get rid of the legalism, and let's get back to what the Scripture says. Amen? Amen. You got, we got to think about that for a minute. Because it's everywhere you turn 
in every church. Get rid of it. Jesus wants his church to repent. Jesus knows where we're at. And Jesus most certainly wants us to do what God has asked. He wants us to be overcomers or victorious. He that overcometh. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious or whoever comes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. That's a pretty awesome verse, really. But there's also some things in there that could be confusing. What is that white stone? And listen, I don't know. Just straight up. I don't know for sure. But here's a few things that it could be. Maybe that white stone represents, and maybe our new name will be innocent. He gives you that stone because you've, had, because you've overcame, because you've been victorious. He gives you that stone, you look at it, it says innocent. But we're not innocent. Of course, we know we're not innocent. Only through Christ are we found innocent. Why? Because, listen, if you are someone that is accused back in ancient times in some uh, cultures, and you have been found innocent of whatever crime it was, and you wanted to make sure the whole community knew, you might be given a particular type of white stone to carry around with you to say, if someone said, look, there's that guy that stole. You could say, look, they've found me innocent. So this would prove a verdict, uh, prove righteousness or maybe obedience. Another thing that the white stone could possibly mean or say, maybe it says accepted or acceptance. If you were to join a club, again, maybe this is even still to this day, uh, the whole, when you're going to turn your hand over, is it a white stone, is it a black stone? Uh, to join a club or a certain group. See, with Christ, we're found innocent. With Christ, we're accepted. Maybe that's what it will say. Maybe that's what it means. Or maybe it says overcame or victorious. Now, sometimes, uh, ancient times, if there was uh, some kind of a tournament, um, race, the winner would get a white stone to show that they were the victor, show that they had won of whatever competition it may be. This white stone would also prove to be a ticket to maybe another competition on down the road, uh, automatic entry, or a ticket to a victory banquet. We're victorious only through Christ. Maybe that's what this new name will be, this new stone, this new, this new thing that he's given us. Maybe that's what he'll say. That new name that he gave us, the victory, he makes us new. See, that invitation, and maybe that's what it'll be. Maybe it'll be an invitation. Sometimes also in ancient times, you might be asked to come to a feast or a banquet. And with that invitation, it might be a white stone. But it wouldn't say invitation on it. It would have the name of your host on it. And with that stone, because of the, the authority of your host, there might be some purchasing power that's going to help you to get to the location that they're at. People would know who to charge to or to help out or what the case may be with his name inscribed on it, not yours. Now think about that, whether it's innocent, accepted, victorious invitation, or maybe he's going to call you Fred. I don't know. But what I do know is we have none of these things without the name above all names. We have no new life. We have no innocence, acceptance, or victory, and there certainly isn't any invitation without Jesus. Which is why I think that white stone's going to have his name on it. 
I think it's going to simply say our Savior, Jesus Christ. Write this verse down and remember it. I want you to look it up later. It's Colossians chapter 3. For you, verses 3 and 4. For you died to this life and your real life with Christ. Your real life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Folks, that's awesome. So where are you? With your innocence, with your acceptance, with your victory, and with the invitation that he has given you. Maybe I should ask this. What action are you on that you need to take? But no, I'll ask this instead. He's accepted you. So now will you accept him? Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so very, very much for this time that we have right now today to come as a church family and worship you. Lord, we thank you so very much for our children, for our Sunday school program, for giving us the opportunity to teach them. Lord, we thank you so very much for our babies, for the new life that we have, for the healing that we've seen in so many of our, our members, our congregation here. Lord, we ask that you will help us now to fully grasp our responsibility, to look to your word, to quit adding to it and get that legalism out of our head, to quit taking away from it, and leave liberalism behind. Lord, help us to seek your two-edged sword, your word. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us that in written form in our Holy Bibles. Lord, just now I ask that today our hearts are touched and that we are moved, and that maybe just someone will accept you today. Lord, for the rest of us that have accepted you, help us to never neglect our responsibility to serve you and to worship you in every aspect of our lives. We ask all these things in the most awesome name of Jesus. Amen.